You know, last week, my family and I got away for a couple days, and we spent a couple days on the beach. We went to New Jersey. We went specifically to a place called Long Beach Island. And I know that when people go to the beach, um, there's different types of priorities that people might have. Some people, when they go to the beach, their number one priority is to get a tan. Like, that's why they go, to lay out and get a tan. Some people, they go to the beach because they want to go in the water and they want to catch a wave or they want to enjoy the ocean. Some people go, they want to build something in the sand. Other people go uh, because they just want to relax and read a book. Lots of different reasons for going. For me, when I go to the ocean, I have one main priority. It's to find the freshest seafood in the closest restaurant. Like, that's my goal. I want to find where in town has the best seafood. And I'm not talking about, like, fried fish. I'm talking about, like, fresh, like, raw oysters. Like, that sort of stuff. That's what I, that's what I love. And um, so whenever I'm near the ocean, I want to spend all my meals. I'm very strategic about how I spend my meals. And I want to spend all of them in seafood restaurants. However, when we were in New Jersey, I, we went to a barbecue restaurant. Now, this is unusual because I, I want seafood, and we can get good barbecue in Syracuse, of course. However, this place was like highly rated, and I walked into it one day, and I looked in, and they had one counter, and all they did was do bar, all they did was barbecue. And that's, the, that's your first clue that the food's going to be good, when they only do one thing. And so I have a picture here. This place was called Smokey's Barbecue uh, right there in Jersey. And I went in and I got some. And the first thing I asked when I went in was, what style barbecue do you guys do? Because there's, you know this, right? There's different regional styles of barbecue. And they said Carolina, which is actually my, my favorite. So I was so excited. But in case you don't know, there's, all, there's different regions, right, have different styles. So like Kansas City Barbecue. Uh, smoked over hickory wood, and their, their sauce is like tomato, molasses, molasses sort of base. It's actually, I don't love that sort of barbecue. Then North Carolina is like a vinegar-based barbecue. South Carolina is like a mustard base. I guess in Alabama, they have some white sauce that they use for barbecue. And then Memphis is all about pork, and Texas is all about beef. And I know way too much about barbecue, I know. But um, I was so excited to hear it was Carolina-style barbecue. And actually, right now on the Food Network, there's the, on the show Chopped, they're having these different styles of barbecue compete against each other. And the last episode I was watching with my wife, and it was Kansas City style. And one of the chefs says, listen, I don't know what to say to all the other parts of the country, but Kansas City barbecue, this is what she said, this is true barbecue. Now, them are fighting words, right, some, some places. But she's like, this is real barbecue. This is true barbecue. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about joy, and we're going to talk about true joy. What is true joy? Because there's all sorts of counterfeit joys out there. And if we're honest, we spend most of our lives looking for that stuff. We, based on what we do, we're looking for joy or what we watch, what we put in our bodies, where we go, who we know. Most of our lives are spent chasing after joy. But what is, this is what we're going to talk about this morning, what is true joy and can it really be ours? And we're going to look at Psalm 30. I'm going to read to you this morning. Psalm 30 from the ESV, beginning in verse 1. Some of these verses are on your notes for you. David writes these words. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Verse 6, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. 
I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. And in this psalm of thanksgiving, we're going to learn three things about true joy. And the first is this. True joy is knowing you've been rescued. True joy is knowing you've been rescued. Now, in this psalm, David has been healed from some sort of physical sickness, some sort of physical disease, something that he thought he was going to die from. God healed him from it. And so to express his gratitude and his thankfulness, David's talking about all that God has done for him. And he's using all these terms about rescue. He says things like this. Did you notice it? You, you've drawn me up. You brought up my soul. You restored me to life. You turned for me my mourning into dancing. You loosed my sackcloth, which was sort of the, the clothes of the mourners. And you've clothed me with gladness. What David is showing us here in this psalm, what's so important for us to understand is this, that true joy comes from knowing that someone has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That's true joy. True joy is rescue. It's knowing that someone has done for you what you could have never done for yourself. In the first verse, he talks about how we've been drawn up and, and, and drawn me up. And that phrase, uh, when you study it out, it actually brings to mind the image of like a bucket going into a deep well and getting the deepest water in the deepest part of the well and drawing it up. That water has no way out on its own. If someone doesn't or something, if the bucket doesn't come get the water, the water's not getting to the top. And this is what David's saying. God, if you didn't come down and for me, if you didn't come down and draw me up, if you didn't come down and find me in my darkness and in my lowest point, I never was going to get out of this. You have drawn me up. We've been rescued, not by what we did and not by what we could have ever done and not by what you will ever do. That's not what has rescued you. You're rescued by what has been done for you and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is salvation. I was reading a book a while back by a guy named Roger Olson, who's a theologian and a professor. And he was giving two different metaphors about how we understand salvation. And he was saying the first one is how we typically think of it, but it's wrong. The second one is a better metaphor. Let me read both of them to you. Now, I'm letting you know up front, this first one's not right, so don't say amen at the end of it. (laughs) I don't want to have to embarrass myself and you. All right, so here's the first one. He says, we think of salvation this way. Somebody drowning in a pit filled with water who is desperately trying to stay afloat, you know, trying to do their thing, and then they cry out for help. God hears their earnest cry and comes to the person in the pit and offers him or her a rope and then helps pull that person out while that person also climbs their way out. A lot of times we're like, yeah, that sounds like salvation. That's what God did for me. I was calling out to him at the lowest moment of my life. He heard me, he threw me a rope, and he pulled me out, and I climbed out. Here's the better metaphor. A man is unconscious in the bottom of a pit. God calls to him, awakening him to his need, And his predicament. God fills the pit with water, which causes the man to slowly rise to the top, enabling him to be free. And all he has to do is not hold himself down. All he has to do is not resist the work of what God is doing in his life. 
Now, I know that no metaphor is perfect, of course, but this metaphor helps us better understand what it means to be rescued, true salvation. You didn't call out to God first. I mean, it might seem that way, but that's not how it works. God called out to you. You weren't just in the bottom of a pit. You were unconscious and unaware of your own circumstances, self-deceived by your own heart, not aware of how much you needed God, not aware of how far you were from God, and God, by his Holy Spirit and his prevenient grace, called out to you and woke your heart up to recognize your lostness, that you needed a Savior, and that Jesus was that Savior. And then he did the work to bring you out, not your own work, but his work. Our work is just not resisting the grace of God that is available. So when you you look at what brings joy to David's heart here, it's not what he's done. He's not saying, his psalm is not like, God, I did all these things for you, and so I thank you. Did you notice that in this psalm, they were almost all you phrases, and rarely ever I phrases, God, you drew me up, you rescued me, you healed me, you brought me to life, you turned my mourning into dancing, you did this, God. So what this means this morning is that if you're a Christian, first off, you've been rescued, and that's your story. But here's the thing about your story. You're not even the hero of your own story. You're not. God is the hero of your story, and your story doesn't start with, I did this, I tried this. I was good. I turned my life around. Your story does not start with that pronoun. Your story starts with you. You, God. You reached down. You rescued me. You found me. You know, interestingly enough, Kevin didn't know I was preaching it this morning, but we sang it this morning, didn't we? In our last song, who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. Does that make your heart leap? You alone can rescue, you alone can save, you alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us. We couldn't go up and find him. He came down to find us, led us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. True joy is knowing you've been rescued. God did for you what you could not do for yourself. Now what happens when we forget? David actually forgot, and it's in the middle of this psalm. I don't know if you noticed it, but in verse 6, he said, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Can you imagine that? David looks around. He's like, life is good. I'm the king. Everybody calls me king. We're at peace or we're victorious against our enemies. We got a lot of stuff. Things are pretty well. I shall never be moved. And, of course, that's the danger of prosperity. Whenever the Bible uses the term prosperity, it's almost always negatively, by the way. It's always a warning. When things are too comfortable and too good, you start to get overconfident. And here's what happens when we forget. We have this sense of entitlement and the sense of arrogance. We're blinded by our own pride. And here's what entitlement is. Entitlement is thinking that we deserve things we don't deserve. And we're not going to be thankful when we think what's been done for us we actually earned. You know, if you go and you work hard all day and they give you your paycheck at the end of the day, you're, you're glad that you have a, a paycheck, but you're not going to be overwhelmingly responsive with deep gratitude. Why? Because you earned it. You worked hard. Like, they kind of owe that to you. But what if at the end of the day they say, here's what you earned, but by the way, we want to just give you this too. Totally different response. Gratitude, thankfulness. Some of you are like, where's that job? Where, 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 do, I sign? where do I apply? I'm interested. See, as long as we think that we kind of stand on our own strength, there's a limit to how joyful we're going to be in Christ. Because we're going to be like, you know what, I know, God, I know that you got me out. I, I get that, but I've been doing pretty good on my own recently. 
And I mean, I've, I've really been doing my best to serve you. You sort of kind of owe me that promotion at work. You sort of owe me the best parking spot at the mall. Like, I kind of deserve that. And then when it doesn't come, guess what happens to your joy? It's, it flees. It's gone. Every little thing has the power to steal your joy when you don't have this overriding sense of being rescued. I was thinking about that Thai boys soccer team that was rescued from that cave, that amazing thing that really gripped the world. What do you think it was like when those families got those boys back? And I don't know what they're, uh, I don't know what it's like over there. I don't know if they're all, what they were doing, but imagine they all jump into a car together. They're driving home. They haven't seen their boys in forever. They're driving home. They're so excited because their boys have been rescued. How, how silly would it be if all of a sudden they started complaining about the weather that day? Or they started complaining about the driver in front of them? Or they started complaining about this, that? We'd be like, are you kidding me? Your son was dead. He was going to die. He's been rescued. Shouldn't you have a little more joy in your heart? And truth is, Christians run around complaining about stuff and bothered about stuff and annoyed by stuff. And here's the problem. We've forgotten that we've been rescued. And when you have an overriding sense of rescue, it gives you joy in every circumstance. And here's what happens when we remember two things. In verse 12, David said this. He said, uh, you've done all these things. You've turned my mourning into dancing, my slack, sackcloth into gladness. And he says, here's why, verse 12, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. That's a weird little phrase. What does David mean, that my glory? Here's all that it means. When he says that my glory, he means all of who I am. Every last bit of me, mind, body, soul, spirit, all of who I am. And so here's what happens when we don't forget, when we remember we've been rescued, we sing out. That's what he's saying. I sing your praises. I can't be silent. That's true joy when you just can't stop but sing. And here's the other thing that happens in verse four. Did you notice that David didn't just want to sing by himself? He told everybody else, hey, all you saints, everybody else who's been rescued, you sing too. And so one of the evidences that you know you've been rescued and that there's true joy at work in your lives is that you're singing all the time. And I don't even necessarily mean literally. Some of you probably shouldn't sing all the time, but, but I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't mean literally, but you have a song in your heart that buoys you in difficult times. But here's the other indicator. You can't wait to invite other people to sing that song with you. You can't help but tell people about the goodness that you've found in Jesus and the rescue that is yours because of his work. And by the way, that's what our class is about this month, uh, starting tonight. How do we invite other people to sing the song of joy that we've found? Okay, so true joy is knowing you've been rescued. Secondly, this morning, true joy is enduring through suffering. True joy is enduring through suffering. David, it's very obvious, right? He's been brought from one thing to another thing, from mourning to, to dancing, from anger to favor, from weeping to joy. But here's the thing. In order to get to and experience and appreciate dancing, favor, and joy, David had to endure mourning, anger, and weeping. True joy is enduring through suffering. True joy doesn't happen in spite of suffering. It doesn't happen outside of suffering. For the Christian, true joy is enduring suffering. Now, let me explain this a little bit. There's two mistakes that I think we make when it comes to suffering. I want to share them with you. The first mistake is this. We underestimate its value. And the second mistake is this. We underestimate its power. Let's talk first about its value. I want to take you to a verse real quick that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. Look what Paul writes about suffering, a man who suffered much for the gospel. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings 
We rejoice in our sufferings. True joy in enduring our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's through suffering that we develop endurance and character and hope and hope that won't be put to shame because the Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. So suffering itself has value to produce in us things that otherwise we could never produce on our own. It's important to notice in this text, you notice that he said, we rejoice What's the preposition? We rejoice in our sufferings. In fact, later in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, why does that matter? Because Paul is not saying rejoice for all things. Paul's not saying give thanks for all things. He's saying rejoice in all things and give thanks in all things. You know, I'll be honest with you, last year, losing my dad and my brother, do I give thanks for that? I don't. I don't have any thanks in my heart for losing them. But can I give thanks in those situations? I'm learning to. By God's grace, we're learning to. So we're not called to give thanks for all things. We're called to give thanks in all things. And here's the question that you might be wondering now. How in the world can we rejoice in it if we're not rejoicing for it? How do we do it? How to rejoice in something if we're not rejoicing for something. And here's what we learn in our lives. There's really two types of joy. There's sort of a surface level joy. And I don't mean to cheapen this level because it matters. It's important. But it's based, it really is based often on circumstances. Maybe we would call it happiness. But I think we could still call it joy in certain situations. But there is a surface level joy that will always be affected by and sort of tainted in our lives because of the sorrow in our lives. Always. We won't escape it. If, you don't, if you're not experiencing sorrow and grief on some sort of ongoing basis, you may just not be paying attention. I mean, there's always stuff in this world that isn't right that causes the Christian to grieve. So there's this surface-level joy that will always be affected by the other things that are happening. But here's the other thing that a Christian will learn, and you'll only learn this through suffering, that there's a deeper joy. There's a deeper joy that sustains us. It doesn't always look like the surface joy. The surface joy looks like the happy face emoji, the smiley face emoji. You know, deeper joy is just kind of enduring, just enduring. Sometimes deeper joy doesn't look like jumping out of bed and saying it's a beautiful day. Sometimes deeper joy just means getting out of bed. That's deeper joy. And suffering has value because only suffering and only times of suffering actually has the power to reveal whether you have that joy or not. You'll never know. If you don't suffer, the joy you feel like you're experiencing in Christ, it actually might be joy in all the things that he's done for you. But when you lose those things and you still endure, now you know you have the deeper joy. You don't know you have it until you need it. In my previous job, I used to fly all the time, all over the country, speaking at different events. And all the times I've been on planes, you get the same speech from the attendants every single time, right? They're actually trying to be funny now. They're doing funny little videos. I don't know if any of you have seen those. They're clever. But they're trying to tell you, like, here's the things you need to know. But they always talk about the oxygen mask, right, that will drop down if we get into a bad situation. Well, by God's grace, I've never seen it happen. I don't even know if they're there. I don't. I've never seen them. You just kind of take their word for it. But I'm comfortable taking their word for it. I don't want the evidence, right? I'm fine with them saying, I'll, I'll, I'll believe you the rest of my life. I hope I never see one of those things drop down. But once, it, once you need it, you're glad it's there. And you don't know it's there until you need it. It's the same way. You don't actually know if you have true joy until you really need it, until you really need to endure. So true joy is 
is uh, knowing you've been rescued, true joy is enduring through suffering. And then, uh, oh, let me, let me say this before I go to the third point. I said there's two mistakes. One is uh, underestimating suffering's value. Here's a second mistake, underestimating its power. And here's its power. Listen, suffering can become more than an experience. It can become more than a season. Suffering can actually become someone's identity. See, it's one thing to lose your joy in suffering, and we will at times. It's a whole other thing to lose your sense of self when you suffer. But this happens. Uh, people don't know who they are apart from... And here's why pain moves from being experienced to being identity. Because the thing that you've lost, whatever it is in your suffering, whatever you lost, that actually was your source of identity. That's what you look to for meaning and value and security and purpose. And you lost it. So now what do you do? Well, you do what every human being does. You search for a new identity. You look for something else. And the closest thing to you in that season is pain, chaos, disorder, suffering. And it becomes our identity. So we have to be careful because pain and suffering do have power. And suffering will be one of two things in your life when you suffer. It'll either be your master or it'll be your servant. It will either own you, control you, brand you as its own, and give you new identity, or it can actually serve you. How does it serve you? It serves you by revealing the deeper joy that's in you. Okay, last point this morning. True joy is delighting in Christ. True joy is delighting in Christ. You know, when we look at this Psalm, Psalm 30, David's joy, what was the source of his true joy? The source of David's joy in this psalm was that he had been rescued. Listen, he had been rescued from suffering. But what is the source of true joy for the Christian today? Not that we've been rescued from suffering, although at times we will experience that, but listen, that we've been rescued through suffering. We've been rescued because of suffering. If it wasn't for the cross, the greatest moment of suffering in the history of humankind, if it wasn't for the cross, you and I would have no hope of being rescued. So we've not just been rescued from suffering, we've been rescued because of suffering. We've been rescued through suffering. And we were united to Christ in his life and in his suffering and in his resurrection. The New Testament says it this way, if you belong to him, your life is hidden in him. This idea of union with Christ is such a powerful thing for us to understand as believers. Here's what the Bible says about union with Christ. Believers are created in Christ, Ephesians 2. Crucified with Christ, Galatians 2. Buried with Christ, Colossians 2. Baptized into Christ, Romans 6. United with him in his resurrection, also Romans 6. Seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians 2. Christ is formed in believers, Galatians 4. He dwells in our hearts, Ephesians 3. The church is the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6 and 12. Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13. And we are in him, 1 Corinthians 1. The church is one flesh with Christ, Ephesians 5. Believers gain Christ and are found in him and him alone, Philippians 3. You are united with Christ. And here's the big idea I want you to think about as you leave this morning. If you're united to Christ, you should be delighted in Christ. If you are united to Christ, you should be delighted in Christ. Earlier I said that sometimes when people suffer, they lose their source of identity. But here's the beauty of Christ. When you suffer, you'll never lose him. He walks with you. He goes with you. He doesn't just go with you. He goes before you. He's already been in your tomorrow. He's already been where you're headed. And there's a beautiful scripture, I can't think of it off the top of my head right now, that says that the grace that you need existed in Christ before the creation of the world. Think about that. The grace that you're going to need tomorrow when you go to work or, or whatever you do tomorrow, the grace you're going to need, it's, it existed in Christ in eternity. 
It's already existed for you. It's there for you. As I close, I want to give you a practical application. We talked about how true joy is being united to Christ and delighting in Christ. What else do we unite our hearts to and delight in? What other things do we find our identity in? I, want, I read an article earlier this week by Henry Nowen, and he talks about five lies of identity. I have them on the screen for you. Here's the five lies of identity. See if you can identify with any of them. Number one, I am what I have. Number two, I am what I do. Number three, I am what other people say or think about me. Number four, I am nothing more than my worst moment. Number five, I am nothing less than my best moment. But let, me, let me help you think through what these lead to. Number one, if your identity is I am what I have, my possessions and my stuff, it's going to lead to materialism, isn't it? An obsession of always having more. If your identity is I am what I do, then you're going to be a performance-driven perfectionist, always trying to prove yourself through your work and through your parenting and through your relationships and through your knowledge and through your humor and through your wisdom. Whatever your thing is, you're going to find something and try to prove yourself. Number three, I am what other people say or think of me. You know what the problem is here? A people pleaser, enslaved to what other people think. Number four, if you believe that you're nothing more than your worst moment, you know where that ends? In shame, shame and guilt. Or I'm nothing less than my best moment, arrogance. I hope people notice me. But what do we have in Christ? Let me compare them and then we'll close. I am what I have. No, in Christ, you lack for no good thing. I am what I do. No, in Christ, I am what's been done for me. I am what other people say or think about me. Wrong. In Christ, I am what God says and thinks about me. And he sees you as if you lived the life Jesus lived. I am nothing more than my worst moment. No, in Christ, God knows you completely and accepts you and loves you perfectly. I am nothing less than my best moment. In Christ, I am not myself at my best. I am seen as God, as Jesus at his best. United to Christ. Delighted in Christ. Without experiencing the first, you'll never experience the second. Without experiencing you being united to Christ, you'll never experience being delighted in and with Christ. But we're united to him because he rescued us. We're united because of suffering. And we're united to know, love, and enjoy God, both now and forever. And that, that's true joy. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit faithfully at work in the hearts of your people, leading us into truth, revealing Jesus to our hearts, our hearts so prone to wander from you. Draw us home. Draw us back and help us to find our welcome in you, hidden in you, not living lives on display, but hiding our lives in Christ, our only true hope. We love you, God. And teach us to experience joy in every season of life, in every circumstance, not giving thanks for everything, but giving thanks in everything. Thank you that the joy doesn't come from within ourselves. We don't muster it up. The joy comes from above, just like every other good and perfect gift. And so this morning we receive that joy. Would you just, if you're comfortable, just hold open your hands in a position of just receiving. You don't have to lift them high in the air, but just open up your hands as if we're just going to ask God's spirit now uh, by his word. God, would you just pour joy out into the hearts of your people? 
whatever circumstances they find themselves in, whatever situations they're walking through, whatever are the things that might steal their joy, help them, oh God, to find that joy, to receive that joy, and to give thanks to you in all things. Holy Spirit, release joy on your people this morning so that we will sing your song and invite others to sing with you. We thank you, God. You're a good God. You give good gifts. You fill our hearts with joy.